Section One of the Journals of Robert Falcon Scott, Volume One, by Robert Falcon Scott. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. The Journals of Robert Falcon Scott, Volume One, Chapter One Through Stormy Seas, Part One. THE FINAL PREPARATIONS IN NEW ZEALAND The first three weeks of November have gone with such a rush that I have neglected my diary, and can only patch it up from memory. The dates seem unimportant, but throughout the period the officers and men of the ship have been unremittingly busy. On arrival the ship was cleared of all the shore-party stores, including the huts, sledges, etc. Within five days she was in dock. Bowers attacked the ship's stores, surveyed, relisted, and restored them, saving very much space by unstowing numerous cases and stowing the contents in the lazarette. Meanwhile our good friend Miller attacked the leak and traced it to the stern. We found the false stern split, and in one case a whole board for a long stem through-bolt, which was much too large for the bolt. Miller made the excellent job in overcoming this difficulty, which I expected, and since the ship has been afloat and loaded, the leak is found to be enormously reduced. The ship still leaks, but the amount of water entering is little more than one would expect in an old wooden vessel. The stream, which was visible and audible inside the stern, has been entirely stopped. Without steam the leak can now be kept under with the hand-pump by two daily efforts of a quarter of an hour to twenty minutes. As the ship was, and in her present heavily laden condition, it would certainly have taken three to four hours each day. Before the ship left dock, Bowers and Wyatt were at work again, in the shed, with a party of stevedores, sorting and relisting the shore-party stores. Everything seems to have gone without a hitch. The various gifts and purchases made in New Zealand were collected—butter, cheese, bacon, hams, some preserved meats, tongues. Meanwhile the huts were erected on the waste-ground beyond the harbour-works. Everything was overhauled, sorted, and marked afresh to prevent difficulty in the south. Davis, our excellent carpenter, Ford, Abbott, and Keown, were employed in this work. The large green tent was put up and proper supports made for it. When the ship came out of dock she presented a scene of great industry. Officers and men of the ship, with a party of stevedores, were busy storing the holds. Miller's men were building horse-stalls, caulking the decks, re-securing the deck-houses, putting in bolts and various small fittings. The engine-room staff and Anderson's people on the engines, scientists were stowing their laboratories, the cook refitting his galley, and so forth. Not a single spot but had its band of workers. We prepared to start our stowage much as follows. The main hold contains all the shore-party provisions and part of the huts. Above this on the main deck is packed in wonderfully close fashion the remainder of the wood of the huts, the sledges and travelling equipment, and the larger instruments and machines to be employed by the scientific people. This encroaches far on the men's space, but the extent has been determined by their own wish. They have requested, through Evans, that they should not be considered. They were prepared to pick it anyhow, and a few cubic feet of space didn't matter. Such is their spirit. The men's space, such as it is, therefore, extends from the forehatch to the stem on the main deck. Under the forecastle are stalls for fifteen ponies, the maximum the space would hold. 
The narrow, irregular space in front is packed tight with fodder. Immediately behind the forecastle bulkhead is the small booby-hatch, the only entrance to the men's mess-deck in bad weather. Next comes the foremast, and between that and the forehatch, the galley and winch. On the port side of the forehatch are stalls for four ponies, a very stout wooden structure. Above the forehatch is the ice-house. We have managed to get three tons of ice, 162 carcasses of mutton and three carcasses of beef, besides some boxes of sweetbreads and kidneys, into this space. The carcasses are stowed in tiers with wooden battens between the tiers. It looks a triumph of orderly stowage, and I have great hope that it will ensure fresh mutton throughout our winter. On either side of the main hatch and close up to the ice-house are two out of our three motor-sledges. The third rests across the break of the poop, in a space formerly occupied by a winch. In front of the break of the poop is a stack of petrol-cases. A further stack, surmounted with bales of fodder, stands between the main hatch and the main mast, and cases of petrol, paraffin, and alcohol are ranged along either gangway. We have managed to get 405 tons of coal in bunkers and mainhold, 25 tons in a space left in the forehold, and a little over 30 tons on the upper deck. The sacks containing this last, added to the goods already mentioned, make a really heavy deck cargo, and one is naturally anxious concerning it, but everything that can be done by lashing and securing has been done. The appearance of confusion on deck is completed by our thirty-three dogs, chained to stanchions and bolts on the ice-house and on the main hatch between the motor-sledges. With all these stores on board, the ship still stood two inches above her load-mark. The tanks are filled with compressed forage, except one which contains twelve tons of fresh water, enough, we hoped, to take us to the ice. Forage. I originally ordered thirty tons of compressed oaten hay from Melbourne. Oates has gradually persuaded us that this is insufficient, and our pony food weight has gone up to forty-five tons, besides three or four tons for immediate use. The extra consists of five tons of hay, five or six tons of oil cake, four or five tons of bran, and some crushed oats. We are not taking any corn. We have managed to wedge in all the dog biscuits, the total weight being about five tons. Mears is reluctant to feed the dogs on seal, but I think we ought to do so during winter. We stayed with the Kinseys at their house in Tehan at Clifton. The house stands at the edge of the cliff, four hundred feet above the sea, and looks far over the Christchurch plains and the long northern beach which limits it. Close beneath one is the harbour bar and winding estuary of the two small rivers, the Avon and the Waimakarari. Far away beyond the plains are the mountains, ever changing their aspect, and yet further in over this northern sweep of sea can be seen in clear weather the beautiful snow-capped peaks of the Kaikouras. The scene is wholly enchanting, and such a view from some sheltered sunny corner in a garden which blazes with masses of red and golden flowers tends to feelings of inexpressible satisfaction with all things. At night we slept in this garden under peaceful clear skies. By day I was off to my office in Christchurch, then perhaps to the ship or the island, and so home by the mountain road over the port hills. It is a pleasant time to remember, in spite of interruptions, and it gave time for many necessary consultations with Kinsey. His interest in the expedition is wonderful, and such interest on the part of a thoroughly shrewd businessman 
is an asset of which I have taken full advantage. Kinsey will act as my agent in Christchurch during my absence. I have given him an ordinary power of attorney, and I think have left him in possession of all facts. His kindness to us was beyond words. The Voyage Out Saturday, November the 26th We advertised our start at 3 p.m., and at three minutes to that hour the Terra Nova pushed off from the jetty. A great mass of people assembled. Kay and I lunched with a party in the New Zealand Company's ship, Ruhapehu. Mr. Kinsey, Ainsley, the Arthur and George Rhodes, Sir George Clifford, etc. Kay and I went out in the ship, but left her inside the heads, after passing the Cambrian, the only naval ship present. We came home in the harbour tug. Two other tugs followed the ship out, and innumerable small boats, ponting busy with cinematograph. We walked over the hills to Sumner, saw the Terra Nova a little dot to the south-east. Monday, November the 28th. Caught eight o'clock express to Port Chalmers. Kinsey saw us off. Wilson joined train. Rhodes met us Timaru. Telegram to say Terra Nova had arrived Sunday night. Arrived Port Chalmers at 4.30. Found all well. Tuesday, November the 29th. Saw Fenwick, re-central news agreement, to town. Thanked Glen Denning for handsome gift, 130 grey jerseys. To town hall to see mayor. Found all well on board. We left the wharf at 2.30. Bright sunshine, very gay scene. If anything, more craft following us than at Littleton. Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Evans, and Kay left at heads and back in harbour tug. Other tugs followed further, with volunteer reserve gunboat, all left about 4.30. Pennell swung the ship for compass adjustment, then away. Evening. Loom of land and Cape Saunders light blinking. Wednesday, November the 30th. Noon, no miles. Light breeze from northward all day, freshening towards nightfall and turning to northwest. Bright sunshine. Ship pitching with southwesterly swell. All in good spirits except one or two sick. We are away, sliding easily and smoothly through the water, but burning coal, eight tons in twenty-four hours, reported eight p.m. Thursday, December the first. The month opens well on the whole. During the night the wind increased. We worked up to eight to nine and to nine point five knots. Stiff wind from northwest and confused sea. Awoke to much motion. The ship a queer and not altogether cheerful sight under the circumstances. Below one knows all space is packed as tight as human skill can devise, and on deck, under the forecastle, fifteen ponies close side by side, seven one side, eight the other, heads together and groom between, swaying, swaying continually to the plunging, irregular motion. One takes a look through a hole in the bulkhead and sees a row of heads with sad, patient eyes come swinging up together from the starboard side, whilst those on the port swing back. Then up come the port heads, whilst the starboard recede. It seems a terrible ordeal for these poor beasts to stand this day after day for weeks together, and indeed, though they continue to feed well, the strain quickly drags down their weight and condition. But nevertheless, the trial cannot be gauged from human standards. There are horses which never lie down, and all horses can sleep standing. Anatomically, they possess a ligament in each leg which takes their weight without strain. Even our poor animals will get rest and sleep in spite of the violent motion. Some four or five tons of fodder, and the ever-watchful Anton, 
take up the remainder of the forecastle space. Anton is suffering badly from seasickness, but last night he smoked a cigar. He smoked a little, then had an interval of evacuation, and back to his cigar, whilst he rubbed his stomach and remarked to Oates, "'No good! Gallant little Anton!' There are four ponies outside the forecastle, and to leeward of the forehatch, and on the whole, perhaps, with shielding tarpaulins, they have a rather better time than their comrades. Just behind the ice-house, and on either side of the main hatch, are two enormous packing-cases containing motor-sledges, each sixteen by five by four. Mounted as they are several inches above the deck, they take a formidable amount of space. A third sledge stands across the break of the poop, in the space hitherto occupied by the afterwinch. All these cases are covered with stout tarpaulin, and lashed with heavy chain and rope lashings, so that they may be absolutely secure. The petrol for these sledges is contained in tins and drums, protected in stout wooden packing-cases, which are ranged across the deck, immediately in front of the poop, and abreast the motor-sledges. The quantity is two and a half tons, and the space occupied considerable. Round and about these packing-cases, stretching from the galley forward to the wheel aft, the deck is stacked with coal-bags, forming our deck cargo of coal, now rapidly diminishing. We left Port Chalmers with 462 tons of coal on board, rather greater quantity than I had hoped for, and yet the load-mark was three inches above the water. The ship was over two feet by the stern, but this will soon be remedied. Upon the coal-sacks, upon and between the motor-sledges, and upon the ice-house, are grouped the dogs, thirty-three in all. They must perforce be chained up, and they are given what shelter is afforded on deck, but their position is not enviable. The seas continually break on the weather bulwarks, and scatter clouds of heavy spray over the backs of all who must venture into the waste of the ship. The dogs sit with their tails to this invading water, their coats wet and dripping. It is a pathetic attitude, deeply significant of cold and misery. Occasionally some poor beast emits a long, pathetic whine. The group forms a picture of wretched dejection. Such a life is truly hard for these poor creatures. We manage, somehow, to find a seat for everyone at our cabin table, although the wardroom contains twenty-four officers. There are generally one or two on watch, which eases matters. But it is a squash. Our meals are simple enough, but it is really remarkable to see the manner in which our two stewards, Hooper and Neild, provide for all requirements, washing up, tidying cabin, and making themselves generally useful in the cheerfullest manner. With such a large number of hands on board, allowing nine seamen in each watch, the ship is easily worked, and mears and oats have their appointed assistants to help them in custody of dogs and ponies. But on such a night as the last, with the prospect of dirty weather, the afterguard of volunteers is awake and exhibiting its delightful enthusiasm in the cause of safety and comfort. Some are ready to lend a hand if there is difficulty with ponies and dogs, others in shortening or trimming sails, and others again in keeping the bunkers filled with the deck coal. I think Priestley is the most seriously incapacitated by seasickness. Others who might be as bad have had some experience of the ship and her movement. Ponting cannot face meals, but sticks to his work. On the way to Port Chalmers I am told that he posed several groups before the cinematograph, though obliged repeatedly to retire to the ship's side. Yesterday he was developing plates with the developing dish in one hand, and an ordinary basin in the other. We have run a hundred and ninety miles to-day, a good start, but inconvenient in one respect. 
we had been making for Campbell Island, but early this morning it became evident that our rapid progress would bring us to the island in the middle of the night instead of to-morrow, as I had anticipated. The delay of waiting for daylight would not be advisable under the circumstances, so we gave up this item of our programme. Later in the day the wind has veered to the westward, heading us slightly. I trust it will not go further round. We are now more than a point to eastward of our course to the ice, and three points to leeward of that to Campbell Island, so that we should not have fetched the island anyhow. Friday, December the 1st, a day of great disaster. From four o'clock last night the wind freshened with great rapidity, and very shortly we were under topsails, jib and staysail only. It blew very hard, and the sea got up at once. Soon we were plunging heavily and taking much water over the lee rail. Oates and Atkinson, with intermittent assistance from others, were busy keeping the ponies on their legs. Cases of petrol, forage, etc., began to break loose on the upper deck. The principal trouble was caused by the loose coal-bags, which were bodily lifted by the seas and swung against the lashed cases. You know how carefully everything had been lashed, but no lashings could have withstood the onslaught of these coal-sacks for long. They acted like battering-rams. There was nothing for it but to grapple with the evil, and nearly all hands were labouring for hours in the waste of the ship, heaving coal-sacks overboard and re-lashing the petrol-cases, etc., in the best manner possible under such difficult and dangerous circumstances. The seas were continually breaking over these people, and now and again they would be completely submerged. At such times they had to cling for dear life to some fixture to prevent themselves being washed overboard, and with coal bags and loose cases washing about there was every risk of such hold being torn away. No sooner was some semblance of order restored than some exceptionally heavy wave would tear away the lashing, and the work had to be done all over again. The night wore on, the sea and wind ever rising, and the ship ever plunging more distractedly. We shortened sail to main topsail and staysail, stopped engines and hove to, but to little purpose. Tales of ponies down came frequently from forward, where Oates and Atkinson laboured through the entire night. Worse was to follow, much worse. A report from the engine-room that the pumps had choked, and the water risen over the gratings. From this moment, about four a.m., the engine-room became the centre of interest. The water gained in spite of every effort. Lashley, to his neck in rushing water, stuck gamely to the work of clearing suctions. For a time, with donkey-engine and bilge-pump sucking, it looked as though the water would be got under, but the hope was short-lived. Five minutes of pumping invariably led to the same result, a general choking of the pumps. The outlook appeared grim. The amount of water which was being made with the ship so roughly handled was most uncertain. We knew that normally the ship was not making much water, but we also knew that a considerable part of the water washing over the upper deck must be finding its way below. The decks were leaking in streams. The ship was very deeply laden. It did not need the addition of much water to get her waterlogged, in which condition anything might have happened. The hand-pump produced only a dribble, and its suction could not be got at. As the water crept higher it got in contact with the boiler and grew warmer so hot at last that no one could work at the suctions. Williams had to confess he was beaten, and must draw fires. What was to be done? Things for the moment appeared very black. 
The sea seemed higher than ever. It came over lee rail and poop, a rush of green water. The ship wallowed in it, a great piece of the bulwark, carried clean away. The bilge pump is dependent on the main engine. To use the pump it was necessary to go ahead. It was at such times that the heaviest seas swept in over the lee rail, over and over again the rail, from the fore-rigging to the main, was covered by a solid sheet of curling water which swept aft and high on the poop. On one occasion I was waist-deep when standing on the rail of the poop. The scene on deck was devastating, and in the engine-room the water, though really not great in quantity, rushed over the floor-plates and frames, in a fashion that gave it a fearful significance. The afterguard were organised in two parties by Evans to work buckets. The men were kept steadily going on the choked hand-pumps. This seemed all that could be done for the moment, and what a measure to count as the sole safeguard of the ship from sinking, practically an attempt to bail her out. Yet, strange as it may seem, the effort has not been wholly fruitless. The string of buckets, which has now been kept going for four hours, together with the dribble from the pump, has kept the water under. If anything, there is a small decrease. Meanwhile, we have been thinking of a way to get at the suction of the pump. A hole is being made in the engine-room bulkhead. The coal between this and the pump-shaft will be removed, and a hole made in the shaft. With so much water coming on board, it is impossible to open the hatch over the shaft. We are not out of the wood, but hope dawns, as indeed it should for me, when I find myself so wonderfully served. Officers and men are singing shanties over their arduous work. Williams is working in sweltering heat behind the boiler to get the door made in the bulkhead. Not a single one has lost his good spirits. A dog was drowned last night. One pony is dead, and two others in a bad condition. Probably they too will go. Occasionally a heavy sea would bear one of them away, and he was only saved by his chain. Mears, with some helpers, had constantly to be rescuing these wretched creatures from hanging, and trying to find them better shelter— an almost hopeless task. One poor beast was found hanging when dead. One was washed away with such force that his chain broke, and he disappeared overboard. The next wave miraculously washed him on board again, and he is now fit and well. The gale has exacted heavy toll, but I feel all will be well, if we can only cope with the water. Another dog has just been washed overboard, alas! Thank God the gale is abating. The sea is still mountainously high, but the ship is not labouring so heavily as she was. I pray we may be under sail again before morning. End of chapter 1, part 1